Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, this guy is like family to me, and he was a real drunk. But now he's almost five years sober, and his life has taken off personally and professionally. He just got married, had his first kid, and now all he does is help people. That's a long way from years ago. At one point, every morning, Murph told himself he wasn't going to drink, and every night the bottles stacked up. He says that's why he considers the fact that he doesn't want to drink today a miracle. This guy was a great hoops player. He turned down playing a major Division I program because his life was already unmanageable. We've got a real alcoholic on our hands. You're going to love this dude. But first, big bro. Stand by the ocean floor. Hey. Murph. What's happening? What's going on, man? Your connection's a little for, better. First time, long time, buddy. <laughs> Your connection's a little better than King of All Blacks. Um, <laughs> really? Well, it's kind of like uh, you sound like underwater a little bit. All right, hold on. Okay. Is this better? Yeah, it is better. All right. I had headphones in. I thought they'd be good. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, this is much better. This is a big, this is a big honor. <laughs> I, uh... I'm a super fan of the pod. Well, you actually, you, know, you sent me that you sent me the rough cuts. I listened to it then. And then I also listened to it once you posted on Thursdays. And I, th- I just think it's great, man. I love what you're doing. And I'm going to steal one of your lines, which is hang in there and take this compliment. But I, I think you're really good at it. And it's been just uh great to, to see your progression, you know, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to in the pod. You and I have known each other for since we were kids and I've seen your, uh, you know, your transformation. I was, I was there during your lows and, and to see you doing what you're doing now is, is awesome. And I genuinely think that you're very talented and uh, can't wait to see where this all goes. I really do appreciate it because, you know, you were one of the reasons this whole thing kind of got started, pushing me in this direction. And that's kind of and and we'll get to this. Right. But. That's kind of what sobriety is about, like living in sobriety. It's being able to bounce ideas off people when you think, oh, man, there's no way I can do that. And somebody's like, dude, sure. dude just do it. And yeah, uh, our, our relationship in particular has been that. Yeah, it has. That's been huge for me. Yeah, me too. Sobriety. Yeah. And, and it's funny because we'll, we'll, start, we'll start right now. I mean, you know, your drinking career, I was there for a big part of it. Like you said, you were there for mine. What is your sobriety date? My sobriety date is July 8th, 2016. Coming up on five years uh, in July. Had a rough July 4th weekend four and a half years ago. (laughs) And, uh, you know, um, came into the rooms on a Friday. Uh, I called our buddy Danny after, you know, a three or four day bender and was just, 
you know, uh, as the cliche goes, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. We'll get to the recovery, but I want to go back to your first drink. If you can remember what, what that My was like. My first drink, I was a sophomore in high school. I got invited to a girl that was a year older than me. Uh, at a, I went to Episcopal. And she was a year older. She was cute. She invited me and two other guys over to her house on a Friday night. And uh, there was, you know, three guys, three girls. We each probably had three or four beers uh, made out with the girl. We walked into Narberth, and it was just such a fun night. I mean, literally, when I look back on it, it was like, I remember that feeling of like, I want to do this all the time. This, this is awesome. You know, this is fun. And, uh, and really, like, from that first drink, um, you know, drinking and then smoking pot became my number one priority. Your, your family's based in Philadelphia, but you grew up in Canada, which is worth mentioning. I was born, my parents were both from Philly. My dad uh, started a business up in Toronto. So we lived in Toronto until I was in eighth grade. And you didn't drink at all there? I didn't drink at all there, no. No. We lived kind of in like a rural area. Um, we got in lots of trouble, but it was like egging cars and stealing from 7-Eleven, things like that. Um, we were definitely like rambunctious boys, but, but drugs and alcohol were not in the scene at all in Canada. That's like the best case scenario for, for an alcoholic. Not only does it make you feel incredible, but you get to make out with the, with the pretty girl on your yeah, first night. It was just like, this is fun, you know? It just like cemented like how much fun that is, you know? And I grew up with like uncles that were like real gregarious, love to have beers and tell hilarious stories. So like, I couldn't wait to drink and, and act like that. And then, so for that to be my kind of uh, initial experience, just, cemented in my mind like this is awesome i want to do this all the time so you got through your entire freshman year without drinking i did yeah and you were a very very good basketball player basketball was pretty much <laughs> you you were you were a very very good basketball player how did how did the drinking impact your your basketball career basketball was probably my number one priority my whole life until you know, I, I, until I started, discovered drinking drugs and women, really. I mean, I, those things just took priority immediately. Uh, you know, I would shoot hoops all night on Friday night, all night on Saturday night. My, my freshman year, my sophomore year, I was trying to figure out ways to lie to my parents and figure out how I could get to, you know, a party and get away with drinking without being caught. Um, so really that, that applied to almost everything in my life. Like my grades started going downhill, um, you know, my basketball career, my relationships, all that stuff, really. Like when I look back on it, immediately started to nosedive. I didn't see it at the time, but, but now that I've been sober for four and a half years and kind of reflected on some of that stuff, it's very obvious. You were unique in a sense that you grew up in an affluent suburban area outside of Philadelphia, but you would go to the city of Philadelphia to play in summer leagues, uh, to play with the most talented kids in the city. What was that experience like? <laughs> it was, that experience was great. Uh, it was eye-opening. 
I kind of realized that that I wasn't that good, you know. Uh, I think for a lot of my life, I was a big fish in a small pond. And then I went down and played in Sunny Hill. Sunny, with, Sunny Hill is uh, one of the best, like, youth Sunny summer Hill was leagues. A great basketball league at Temple um, that, you know, the best players in the city play play in this league. And um, I played against Rashid Wallace and Kobe Bryant and tons of other really good players. And it was, it was very apparent that uh, those guys were on a different path than I was. They were a different level athlete. They were, they were longer, faster, quicker, stronger, and just better. But it was a really cool experience. I mean, I had a great time. Uh, I learned a lot. I, I was, you know, hanging out with kids that were, you know, from different backgrounds than myself. And, and I had a, you know, I had a blast doing it. I have so many funny stories from those times. But in terms of what it was like, it, it was, I would describe it really just as an eye opener about, you know, the talent that's out there. And Sonny Hill, by the way, is a Philadelphia basketball legend. That's why the league was named after him. Uh, I can do a good Sonny. Good morning, everybody. I can do a pretty, <laughs> pretty good Sonny Hill impression. Yeah, I mean, it's a great league. He his, you know, his whole mission is to provide a, a platform for basketball players to be seen and recruited by colleges, but also to make sure that they're getting a great education. So you had to take a test before the season started. And if you didn't pass the test, Sonny Hill would provide tutors that you would have to go to once a week during the whole summer so that you could kind of up your grades and, and be more appealing to colleges that were recruiting these kids. So that's, I didn't know that. Yeah. The, the test was hilarious. I mean, it, it was like, if you go to the store and you have five dollars and you buy something for four dollars how much change yeah <laughs> it, it was not a tough test and, and everybody on my team passed it all right not many guys didn't pass it i would guess i don't think i don't think so as your basketball career is kind of because i mean look let's consider what it is it's kind of taken off in in a relative sense as you're playing in sunny hill you move from canada you come to philadelphia you're playing against some of the best players how does your drinking go along and progress my drinking just gradually progressed all through high school. My parents were very strict. They were they were tough to pull the wool over their eyes on. My dad, you know, has seen it all. He, I couldn't get away with much. When I went out at night, they would be up waiting for me. They'd smell my breath. If, I, if they smelled alcohol or, or pot on me, I'd be grounded for a couple of weeks. So, you know, I, I basically kept it in the fairway in high school. I would say I drank every opportunity that I possibly could. If I could convince my parents to let me sleep out on a weekend at a buddy's house, I would drink as hard as I could. Or if I was allowed to go to a concert or something, I, I would I would get it in. But for the most part, you know, I was drinking, I wasn't drinking very often. When I did drink, I went hard. Um, and it was a source of a lot of fights, you know, with my parents. Uh, my mom in particular she she probably saw how my grades were suffering my attitude was suffering and you know could tell that there was something going on with me and she would ask me like what's going on and I you know like a like a typical kind of addict alcoholic I'd say you can get off my ass what's your problem you know? <laughs> like our relationship just kind of suffered for a few years there um 
because they were they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. You know. Did you um, notice at that point in time, and whether you knew it then doesn't really matter. But looking back, do you see that alcohol and drugs? And I don't know the answer to this. Was your number one priority? Absolutely. Alcohol, drugs, and like socializing, like women, friends, being in the cool crowd, all that stuff mattered to me way more than it should and mattered to me way more than the other things. You know, I mean, I heard a, a line in a meeting the other day where a guy was talking about altering your goals to meet your behaviors rather than altering your behaviors to meet your goals. And that summed me up you know I mean if my goal was to play college basketball I I quickly changed that goal to say I don't care if I play college basketball because my behaviors weren't lining up with with making that a reality and by the way you could have you could have walked on at a division one school without question and you could have you could when I was at Villanova I played intramurals and, and the assistant coach asked me if I wanted to walk on and I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, all right, well, you need to go get a physical and bring the paperwork to me. And I was like, nah. <laughs> 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 like, I just didn't. It was like, that was too much of a, my life was already unmanageable and enough that that was a problem for me. And, yeah. And you know my story. I mean, I was bartending at Villanova. I was having a blast, like sitting on the bench and being a cheerleader. Well, hold on, hold on. slow down now, slow down. We'll, we'll 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 get there, but I, I there's more. The high school stuff gets pretty it gets pretty interesting because it really evolved. Like in our in our crowd, I mean, obviously Murph and I not only do are, are we like family now, but we grew up alongside each other, and there was a lot of like I felt like the progression uh, into the use of of drugs, whatever kind of drugs you're talking about, was significant for our group of friends. Like, how did that how did that affect you? Uh, towards the end, I guess, of, of your high school years? Um, in terms of what? Like just being surrounded by it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all over the place. Yeah, I mean, we grew up in like a pretty affluent area. Um, kids had access to kind of whatever they wanted. Uh, a lot of kids had their parents' credit cards or whatever. A lot of, a lot of parents went out of town and left their kids home alone. So you had places to party and and there, you know, there was booze and drugs available if you wanted it. And I mean, I loved it. I, I was willing to take, I was willing to try anything. You know, my brother-in-law always jokes and he would say, if you handed Murph three pills, he would take them and then he would ask you what they were. <laughs> uh, and that's just, you know, I just, if it was going to alter my mood, I was down to try it and down to do it. And you know, that just, it progressed more and more in high school. Um, did you get more comfortable? Then, did you get more comfortable in your own skin? Yeah, I think, I think so, for sure. I mean, I think alcohol is liquid courage for anybody. Uh, I don't think I was particularly uncomfortable in my own skin before. I mean, I, I'm sure I had um, insecurities like, like anybody, especially any high school kid and, and, and alcohol in particular help there um but i don't even you know i don't look back and say that's why i did it i I don't look back and say i was so uncomfortable i couldn't talk to anybody or anything i just 
loved it just was so fun i wanted to do it i loved you know just that whole party scene it just seemed exciting to me and like why would you want to do anything else so you you finish up you're finishing up at episcopal you're obviously partying what does like your your college decision look like (laughs) my my college decision was uh because you go, you to go get, to this high school where people are going to Penn, they're going to Harvard. They're going to really good schools for sure. Probably, you know, 20 to 30% of my class probably went to Ivy League schools. And, you know, my grades weren't horrible, but they weren't great. I mean, I never applied myself in school at all. You know, my whole, since, you know, the first grade, I just, I, my report cards would always say, like, he has a ton of potential, but he just needs to buckle down a little bit. Uh, and you know, in high school, that was especially true. So I tried to convince my parents to, to let me go to like Arizona State. <laughs> I forget the schools I wanted to go to, but they were hilarious. And my dad was like, "No way, dude! I'm not paying for you to go to a four-year vacation." Uh, and somehow, uh, the University of Massachusetts—I think it was because their basketball team was good at the time. I'll apply there. And I swear to God, I think I applied there because the application was easy. Like that, that was where, that was how I was out. Because the application was the easiest. Easy. Yeah. Like some of the applications you had to write like essays and whatnot. Like I think UMass, you just had to like fill out some uh, multiple, (laughs) multiple choice. I mean, that's, that's literally where my mindset was. Yeah. And uh, so I went to UMass for a semester I got up there, uh, the classes that I were in, there was like 400 kids in the class. So I was like, this is amazing. I don't have to go. And I basically never went to class. And I got a, like a point zero five. I don't know. It was a, I, My GPA was pathetic. I think I failed four classes and got a, got a D or a C in one. And uh, I came home and, uh, which was actually a crazy story if you want me to go into that. Yeah. I, I, I went, I came home for Christmas break and my buddy, Matt, who was out in Denver at the time, and I decided to go skiing in the Poconos, which was about an hour and a half outside of Philadelphia. And we went up, we rented a hotel room and somehow we got acid and we, we take, we ski for the day and then we take a couple of hits of acid and we're just hanging out in the hotel room tripping like a couple weirdos and all of a sudden the phone starts ringing and it's ringing and it's ringing and we're letting it ring and this is by the way this is you know this is no cell phone this is the hotel room phone there was no cell phones at the time so this is the the hotel room phone and we're like who the hell's calling us we're tripping it's not a good we're not a good mental place so finally i'm like i gotta pick this up dude something this might be an emergency so i pick it up and it's my brother and he's like, dude, you're you're in big trouble. Dad's looking, Dad's looking for you, and I think he's coming up there. And uh, I, I guess my brother knew that we had had we had gotten asked it. He knew it wasn't going to be pretty if my dad came up. So talk about a bad, you know, talk about a bad trip. My dad did not end up coming up there, but when I came home the next day, because he had seen your grades. Yeah, he had seen my grades. And he was pissed, uh, and rightfully so. So I got home, and he said, "You're not going. You're not going back to UMass. 
it's a fucking joke. You know, you're going to go up to Canada and work for me in, in the parts department and his business, which I did for, you know, like a month. And then I applied to Villanova to go to night school. Uh, Villanova said if I had got a certain GPA uh, for a semester at night school, then they would let me in full time. So I did that and I got straight A's. I lived up at home with my parents. I was pretty much, you know, living clean and I did well. And then Villanova let me, let me in full time. What was your experience like at Villanova? I and mean, now we can get into the, the bartending and stuff like that. Cause it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It was, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's such a bummer. I mean, Villanova is such a great school. Uh, I met so many great people there and I did not take advantage of it at all. I socially had a blast. A friend of ours and myself got a job working at like the most popular bar on campus called Smokey Joe's. We literally went to the owner. We were freshmen and we said, you know, Pat, we will weed your garden. We'll, you know, mulch your lawn, whatever it takes. Just let us in the door. Let us bar back. Let us, you know, clean the floors. Whatever you want, just let us work here. And he's like, all right, I'll give you guys a shot. And literally within like three months, both of us were bartending. And it was fun, dude. I mean, I felt like a celebrity. I was making tons of money. There was lots of women. Uh, we're drinking every night. Uh, you know, those guys that own smokes were great, great to work for. They they let us have fun. You know, we weren't supposed to drink behind the bar, but we drank and we had a blast. It was literally like we one shot for you, one for me. Yeah, and you yeah, mentioned we, you mentioned the women. How were your relationships with women? Every relationship I was in was unhealthy, I would say, because I was unhealthy and I treated women. I, I think I heard Frank say this last week on your podcast, like a drug. And I, I totally relate to that. I didn't think about them as human beings or partners or, you know, I just thought about it as like someone I could use basically to get what I wanted. Yeah. Uh, and that's not how I was raised. You know, that's not who I was. And, you know, looking back on that, I think that caused me a lot of shame uh, going forward. But certainly at the time, I thought it was, uh, you know, a ton of fun. It was like everything I had ever wanted, basically. It was bartending at Smokey Joe's and having like women fight over me at the bar. Yeah. Like, to, to me, that was heaven. And the ego is like loving it, you know? The ego is out of control. And uh, I, th I think I'm the man at that point. So how does that, how does college finish up? Like, take me through those years. So, yeah, my college career was, was, uh, was a rough time. I, um, I just basically never went to class. I got really into pills. Uh, For like prescription pills, drugs. Prescription drugs. Like I was taking a lot of speed and a lot of painkillers and I just wasn't going to class. Um, and, you know, my parents, I was lucky enough that they paid for me to go to school and my grade, they would ask me how I was doing every semester. And I'd be like, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You'll see. <laughs> and then the report card would come and it would be, you know, just barely passing or not passing. Um, and, and I just couldn't get out of that funk. Like I, I couldn't do it. I remember 
having a conversation with my dad after I got one of my report cards and like he was getting emotional. He was he literally was like, I don't care if you cheat, just just get through school. Like you gotta just graduate it. And he was like getting emotional, which was not uh you know in his nature. I didn't see that very often. And I remember just like feeling so bad about myself and um and wanting to change. Like I remember that conversation and I remember thinking like, I'm going to change. I'm going to do better. I'm going to kick ass in school. And then literally that night being back out like park and, and like sleeping through class. And I had like some weird anxiety. I would, I was so like disorganized and, and just out of it that I would like show up to class and they'd be handing out the results of a test that I'd missed. And so I, I had like anxiety. I would I would drive to school and then turn around and drive home. Like I was all jacked up on speed and it was it was not a good scene. So I I, I was like barely scraping by and it was like my fifth year of school and I, I just felt like I couldn't graduate. And once again, my my grades were get, were coming in the mail in like a week, and I, I saw the writing on the wall. I knew that they weren't going to be good, and my parents were going to freak out. And so I told them that I, I had a problem and that I needed to get sober. And I think I knew that I had a problem, but I wasn't really surrendering at that point. I was more just kind of coming clean to get out of trouble. Well, it's like they you say, know, they say, uh, I've heard people say, you know, I had a, I had a back problem. I have people on my back. So, <laughs> big time, big yeah. time. I had a major problem with people on my back and that was my only way out. The only way that I saw at the time. And, and certainly I knew that I did have a problem. Um, so I told them that. And I think, I don't know, I haven't talked to them about what they thought about that at the time, but, um, I called our buddy Pete F um, and he took me to a meeting and I stayed sober for almost a year. I think I was like 21 years old. I always, dude, I always say, I remember, I remember where I was. Cause part of the thing that you do when you get sober, especially when you're young is you tell people. And I remember you, I remember where I was when you called me and you told me uh, yeah. that, that you were going to start. And I was like all for it. Now I didn't think, and I was like, this guy's got a problem. I'm, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't, I was like, that's awesome. I mean, cause we had had this guy in our life that you're talking about Pete that, uh, had kind of laid the groundwork and he showed us that sobriety, uh, there was a kind of a glow with, with him. Pete was one of my best friends growing up. He got sober. He, he, he went out in like a blaze of glory when we were 17. I mean, he just could not handle drugs and alcohol. So he got sober. Nobody questioned it. Like it was clearly the right thing for him to do. And then his life just got so much better. I was talking to him about this a couple of weeks ago, just like how, you know, I used to look at him in college. He started a business. Uh, I think he walked onto the lacrosse team. Yeah. He was dating a beautiful girl. He was happy and positive. And meanwhile, I was sleeping all day and spending, you know, my whole life was spent in a bar or like in frat house basements at night. Uh, so like clearly, even back then, I saw, I, I just saw the difference in the lives you were leading. It was very and black and with him. It was very, attractive. it was very black and white with him. I mean, it, it was it, very it, black and white. It was very messy. 
the way that he yeah. flamed out. And it was very triumphant the way he had life going. And I think we yeah. all were like, wow, that's pretty awesome. For sure. So I, I, I legitimately saw that as an option for myself because I clearly, you know, when I was being honest with myself, knew that I couldn't control, you know, my drinking and drugging. I couldn't say no, even if I had a big test the next day or, you know, I had to be home for Easter brunch with my parents or whatever. Like, I just couldn't walk away from a party ever. Uh, and, you know, I was like doing whatever I could to get pills. Like, I, I was really like a junkie with the, with the speed and the painkillers at that time. Um, stealing, lying, cheating, whatever I had to do to get that, those. So I, I knew I had a problem. And, you know, I waved the white flag so that I would get out of trouble for school. And I stayed sober. I went to meetings. I got a sponsor. And I had an incredible 10 months. Uh, I think I stayed sober for 10 months. I ran a half Ironman. I graduated from Villanova. My relationship with my parents was great. Uh, I just, it worked for me like like you just said about Pete it was like black and white like my life immediately got better when I put the drugs and alcohol down so how did you end uh, up how did you end up drinking again so I don't I don't really remember like exactly how it went but I didn't I didn't I wasn't all into the program you know I I, I didn't I went to you know maybe a meeting or two a week I had a sponsor who I never called. I, I didn't work the steps. I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't do the things that are suggested that you do in the program. And, um, you know, eventually caught up to me and uh, I decided that it wasn't, I'm not an alcoholic. I just was in a bad place and I was just like abusing pills. So if I go back out and I, and I stay away from drugs, I'll probably be fine. That, that was, you know, the lie that I told myself. You start to drink again. How quickly do you, do you start to uh, use drugs again? You know, I don't remember. I, I, unlike you, like you can remember, your memory is incredible. I can't remember. I think I was good for a while. Like, I don't think I used drugs for a couple of years um, after I went back out. Uh, you know, I think my drinking pretty immediately was, you know, back to like a binge type of drinking where I didn't drink much during the week, but on the weekends, you know, our crew at that time was all like living down in Maniunk and, and hanging out. We would go hard yeah. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, fun day, and then, and then kind of recover and lick our wounds during the week. Um, but I immediately was back to like alcoholic behavior and I, and I'm sure I started doing drugs. But you're out of school. You graduated school. You're out of the woods there. You, yeah. You've got a job. You're making money. What happens then with, with, with the alcohol and the drugs? Like, where are you living? What's going on? So, um, that's a good question. I, so, I was working. I lived downtown for a little bit in Old City. Uh, you know, I was just kind of in, like, one unhealthy relationship after the next with women. and And I'm not saying they were unhealthy. I, I was unhealthy and, and therefore the relationship was unhealthy. Uh, I was working. I was doing pretty good. I got a job. We, we had a, an office in Virginia Beach um, where the guy that was running the branch office 
you know, kind of quit unexpectedly on us. So I went down there to run that branch for a couple of years. And I kind of remember that kind of being, um, like, I re- remember really living alcoholically down there. I isolated a lot and I started drinking by myself and I was back on like speed pills. I was doing a lot of Adderall um, and like ordering, <laughs> I remember like ordering pills from like China uh, and getting them FedEx to my office in Virginia Beach. Um, like normal people just, don't, normal people don't do that. Normal people don't do that for sure. And just like, I guess that was where maybe I started drinking by myself because I didn't really know anybody down there. I moved down there and, you know, I would leave work on a Friday and, and stop at the liquor store and get a bunch of booze and I'd have a bunch of pills and I would just, you know, drink during the week. I, I would go out to like a bar uh, for dinner or something by myself and maybe, you know, meet people. I met a couple of women down there that I dated and, uh, but I was really going hard, uh, in like a, in a dark, weird solo way where I was isolating and, and drinking and using a lot by myself. And then you come, so you come back to Philly and it's almost like you're, you're, you're back full throttle because your job moves you back to Philadelphia and you come back from Virginia beach and you're kind of, in the same gear you were before you stopped drinking the first time. Yeah. When I got back from Virginia, I was probably like close to 30 years old. And I, I was, I was partying hard. I was like kind of keeping it in the fairway. I wasn't, uh, it was mostly, like I said, it was like binge drinking on the weekends. Um, and like, I would, you know, get up and work and, and do my thing all week. And then Friday would come and I would just go hard, like real hard every weekend. I got sober when I was 39. So when I was 35, I think, is when I really became like a daily drinker. Um, where I started out like having wine, um, you know, with dinner or, or whatever. And that quickly became like a bottle and a half, two bottles of wine, like on a Tuesday night. You know, every night I was drinking. I was doing a lot of drugs at that time, too, like starting around age 35 and you like move back la- you move back from the city of philadelphia to the suburbs of to philadelphia the, where you basically kind of build a house out there so you're alone uh you know in a big yeah. in a big house by yourself a lot in an area where you know a lot of people you obviously have a lot of connections but things are yeah. things are just getting worse yeah things are getting a lot worse but on paper uh, but on paper and i gotta say this because this is an interesting alcoholic you know, side note, you were doing a pretty good job of keeping up appearances, making it look like you were doing okay. Uh, people didn't know. Well, that's the whole thing, right? I mean, that's how we are. We, you know, we put on such a front, so many lies, so much, you know, our whole lives are spent trying to convince people we're all right so that, so that you know, our party doesn't come to an end. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly was, was living that way trying to act like I was okay and hiding everything. I mean, you looked, uh, things look great. You're dating beautiful women who, who honestly kind of have, they have their stuff together. Uh, like you, you, yeah. you know, you did a good job with that. I mean, obviously I was still very close to you. You did a good job with that dating, dating women that, you know, were good people, but you, you were the one that was the, the toxic part of the relationship, but you didn't seem like a toxic guy at all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess I was able to fool people. I think the women I dated quickly figured it out. Um, 
that, you know, I, I wasn't all I was cracked up. <laughs> uh, so a lot of them, you know, and stayed with me, but they, you know, it was a source of a lot of problems in the relationship. Um, just, just the way I partied, I, I was like morally bankrupt and, and spiritually bankrupt. And I treated most of the women that I dated accordingly. It was dark. You know, I was I was just living living a lie, um, which I think probably most alcoholics and addicts do. You're you're just lying about everything and, and putting on a facade that's that's just not reality. I gotta bring I gotta bring this this up. I mean, I gotta bring this up because it wouldn't be reality if I didn't. You know, while you're going into this like maybe somewhat of an abyss, I'm there. I am yeah. I am there, and you were one of the people who kind of helped me realize I was there. One of the people who was like, I was so close to, but then you were just like, didn't want to hang out with me anymore. I mean, tell the story about when I came over to your house. Like, I want you, <laughs> I want you to tell that yeah, story. I, yeah. So this was like a time when, when you were, you had been in a very dark place where, you know, I, I think of you as like one of my like happiest friends. Like when we were young, you were like super popular, great football player. Everybody loved you. you. You were always like joking and laughing. And then as your disease progressed, you became like kind of dark and moody and, and just like we joke about, you'd steal 20 bucks and then help me look for it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had gotten to a point where like we weren't hanging out, we weren't talking that much. And then you had started calling me, telling me you were doing better. I think you had tried getting sober a few times and you were doing better and uh we we started to reconnect a little bit and i was having people over for a phillies playoff game it was october 1st it was a month it was a, yeah. a, a little bit more than a month before i went to rehab what year was this it was 2011 2011 yeah so um this this is funny let me back up a little bit i play a sport called squash downtown at, at a club called the racket club which is kind of like a fancy type club in the city uh where they play this sport called squash that i love and the pro at, at the club is a good buddy of mine and he had asked me if i was willing to host a uh, college squash team for the weekend uh who, who were in town for a tournament and i said yeah no i would love to no problem i have extra rooms in my house I'd be happy to do it I said, I probably won't even be there. I'll leave the key, et cetera. He said, okay, well, let me, let me talk to the coach and I'll call you back and confirm if we need you. So he never called me back to confirm that he, that he needed me. So I assumed that they weren't coming. So back to October 1st, <laughs> I'm having a couple people over for this Phillies playoff game. <laughs> and, uh, they were like, you know, my non-alcoholic friends. Like it was one of my buddy's sister's uh, bachelorette. This party. is like a normal. This is a normal group of people. One of the women Very there. One of the women people. there is pregnant. Yeah, pregnant. The one's a doctor. It's her bachelorette party. Like I don't even think they were drinking. It was her bachelorette party, and they came over for the game. And there's probably five or six women, and me and a couple buddies. And you call and say, "Hey, can I come over with this girl that I met in Wawa?" <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you came over and you were banged up. I mean, the two of you, so was she. To the point where I was like, I don't know what drug Pete is on. Like, you were you were banging into walls, 
you took your shoes off on the couch and you were massaging your feet. It was weird. Everyone was kind of looking at each other like, what's going on? So I think you broke up with the girl on the couch um, in front of everybody. And she started bawling, crying. <laughs> and I was like, Pete, I took you in the other room. I said, man, you got to go, dude. Like, this is, you're making people here uncomfortable. You know, this is not my normal crew. Like, if it was our normal buddies, like, it wouldn't have been a problem. But I felt, you know, kind of embarrassed. And I was like, you got to go. So my house had, like, a long driveway. And it crossed a, a bit of a creek. About halfway down. Let me interject, by the way. The only reason this story is funny is because I'm nine years sober today. Go, go, yes, go, go back. Because it was not funny. <laughs> no, it's, it's it not. was, but it wasn't. Yeah. But uh, so the, the, the creek crosses the driveway about halfway down, and you guys leave, and, and everyone's like, holy shit, what was going on with the two of them? People just couldn't get over what we just witnessed. And we're sitting there, and one of the girls goes, oh, my God, they're coming back. And I'm like, what? So I, I go out to the front door, and I open the door, and your car was upside down, headlights facing the sky in my creek. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran out, and I freaked out on you. Know, I was like, you got to get the fuck out of here. As I'm screaming and yelling, my phone rings, and I think, uh, for whatever reason, I answered it. It was a number that I didn't recognize. And it was like, hello, Mr. Barton? And I said, yeah, this is me. And he goes, uh, this is uh, Alan Thompson. I'm the women's squash coach at Mount Holyoke University. We're going to be there in about 20 minutes. <laughs> and I got a call upside down. I'm banged up. There's beers all over my house. So I, I just kind of lost it and it ended up all working out. Well, it did it. It did it because I ended up. It ended up getting me sober. That was like I was at the end of my. Yeah, rope. that was like kind of a kickstart. I remember you coming over, and I don't know if that meant anything to you, but I remember just being like, "Pete, man, you're not the guy." That yeah, I, know. I remember you know, that. It's 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 just not fun to be around you. I was like, I think you got to get sober. And then I think your brother found out about it, and that really like, that was it. That was it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, everything happens for a reason. It does, man. I mean, that, and, and that, now it makes, makes for a great story. I mean, these women from the Mount Holyoke team showed up and they were like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I forget what I told them, but I talked them into thinking it wasn't that big of a deal that the car was upside down in my creek. So, all right, let me get back to you. So now you're 35 to 39. How does it go? How do you how do you end up getting sober? Because you really did appear. I mean, that that party is actually a nice so was, w window into you doing okay. Yeah, I wasn't doing okay. I mean, I was in a relationship with a woman for a long time who was who was great, super nice uh, person. Super nice, super about. cool. Super cool. She liked a party too. So I had kind of no governor, and and we partied hard, and I drank daily. Um, and you know, my life just started to, to, like, like I said, I was more morally and spiritually, you know, pretty much bankrupt. Uh, I was treating her very poorly. I was 30 pounds overweight. I stopped playing squash. I stopped reading books. Like I stopped doing anything that I used to like to do. And all I did was get home from work and drink. And I, I recognized that I, I, 
like every day I would wake up and say, I'm not going to drink tonight. And every night I would stop at the liquor store after work. Like, you know, you hear people say that all the time, but that's just like so true for me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't make it, you know, a day without drinking for those four years. And I was having some fun, like I was enjoying myself, but more and more it was becoming not fun. I mean, and this is, um, so this is again worth adding, you know, Murph, when I got sober, you invited me. To, I was living between Jersey City and doing basketball in Springfield, Massachusetts, right where, right where Holyoke is, near Holyoke. And uh, yeah, right. you asked me, you were like, hey, why don't you come live with me? You offered me like, like and, I, and I stayed with you. And you were always uh, staying with the, the, the woman you were dating. So I, I didn't see you too much. And, and, you know, when I did see you, you weren't a train wreck, but it was clear like something, something was happening. Um, yeah, we had a couple instances that you were there for that you knew, like, oh, holy shit, Murph's going hard. And I think, honestly, I think I wanted you to stay there because I saw you had that same light that our buddy Pete F. had uh, back in college. And I knew that I needed that. I used to wake up all the time and be like, dude, you got to get sober. Like, I knew I was going to get sober. I just needed, like, a little push. I was so close to, to waving the white flag. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And I, I really think that I invited you to live with me to kind of be around some positivity and some sobriety. And um, I think there was a, definitely a, a relation there that, that caused me to, to invite you to live there. But anyways, I, um, I was getting in like lots of trouble with the woman I was dating for doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. She was getting fr fed up with my behavior. I was going so hard. I was doing a decent amount of Coke at that point. Um, and July 4th weekend came actually a week before July 4th, uh, the woman and I got in a fight and I drove home and I was like blacked out drunk. And I remember waking up the next day being like, dude, you're so out of control. Like you knew you shouldn't drive, you shouldn't be driving and you drove. Like I just started to really feel powerless over alcohol. Like I, I wanted to be better and I couldn't bring myself to be better. And then a buddy of ours called me and, and said, Hey, I'm going out on a Wednesday night. And why don't you come meet me? My wife and kids are out of town. Like I'm looking to have some fun. And I said, I got something going on for work tomorrow. I'll meet you out for like two beers, but I got to be home by nine. And I was like adamant about it. And the next thing you know, it's six in the morning and I'm calling out of work. I think it was maybe a Thursday, you know, doing drugs, hadn't slept. Didn't actually didn't even call out of work. Just didn't show up. And then I called my dealer, did the same thing again Thursday. And Friday morning came around and I just, I had had enough. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I called our buddy Danny and uh, I told him that I needed to go to a meeting. And he was like, well, it's, it's a coincidence because I'm going to see a really good buddy of mine speak tonight at St. Joe's University, so I'll pick you up. Actually, he didn't pick me up. I met him there. And I went to a meeting, and the guy, I related to everything he said. Um, and I remember having, like, a tremendous feeling of relief that I didn't have to, you know, live the way I was living anymore. How does your life start to progress, like, in early sobriety? How does it change? What are you doing differently? 
I think they're getting, it immediately started getting better. Those first couple months were tough. There were certainly times when I questioned whether I, I was, you know, doing the right thing, whether I wanted to be sober. I remember driving over the Walt Whitman Bridge on like a Friday in the summertime, and there was a, a billboard advertising Miller Lite, which I had never even drank. But it was like a summer Friday, and I was looking at that billboard, and I was like, what am I doing? Like, there's no way I can live sober for the rest of my life like I'm never gonna get to like go down the shore and have a bunch of beers and have a good time and uh there was there was many moments like that in the first you know I don't know six months um but I had a great support system around me you and Pete and Danny and and other guys that I met in the program and Scott our buddy Scott who was a big help to me early too um, and I just went to a ton of meetings and you and I spoke on the phone every day and I started to kind of open up about my feelings and, uh, w- with you in particular, I would tell you every little thing that happened during my day and how it affected me. <laughs> and it was awesome. But it was, yeah. And as another alcoholic, yeah. it was awesome because that's when the magic starts to happen. That's when you start to get that feeling that you got from using drugs and alcohol because because you you put that crap out there and you're like oh like it's not that big a deal and the other person can totally relate uh absolutely and, and that's the stuff in early sobriety you're just a you know you're just a raw nerve big time i mean i had been numbing my emotions for so long um that like every little feeling i had i was like oh my god what, what is this how do i deal with this these feelings um and it was tough. Um, I remember Scott uh, telling me early on. Yeah, I mean, he told me so much good stuff early on. Uh, but he, one of the things he told me was a problem. Like, you got to talk to me. You got to be honest with me because a problem shared is a problem halved. And that kind of stuck out to me. Like a, like, like a problem cut in half. Cut in half, yes. Um, and that turned out to be true for me because a lot of times I would call you and tell you this thing that felt like a huge deal to me. And then as it came out of my mouth, I was like, Oh my God, nothing. Like I can get through this. Um, and I went to a ton of meetings, you know, I, I, I kind of went in with a bit of a bad attitude, I would say, where I thought I'll give this a try, but I'm not going to hang out with these people. I'm not, you know, into the God thing. I'm not into the big book or any of this other stuff, but I'll go to meetings. And, you know, just by going to meetings, uh, I I basically started to get that stuff, I guess, by osmosis. I started to make friends in the rooms um, and I started to, you know, get in service a little bit you know, chair meetings and do some other things that helped. And how important was all how, how important was all that stuff? Like the like the service aspect of it. The service aspect was huge because when I first started, and when, I, and when we're talking about service, we're talking about you make coffee at at, at a meeting. You know, even yeah. if you set up the chairs or yeah, or you, you clean the chairs up afterwards, or you chair a meeting. Which uh, which means which means by the way, you got to get there on time. And you, and you, you got to get there early. Yeah, early. And you got to leave. And talk to people. Exactly. And you leave a bit late. And and really, like, that's where the magic happens, I think. Because when I first started, I would show up a minute late and leave a minute early and not talk to anybody. And then as I started doing that kind of stuff, 
I started to meet people and, and really make friends. And I think it gives you some accountability. Like if you don't show up or, you know, for a week or something, somebody might call you and see how you're doing. Um, but really just getting to know the people in the group and realizing that they're all awesome people and, um, man, started making friends. People started asking me to tell my story for them. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed into becoming very involved in the group. When do you think it changed for you? You know, a, a guy named Sonny, uh, when I lived in Louisiana, always told the story of he asked his sponsor, like, you know, this guy had been sober forever. So maybe 40 years ago, he asked his sponsor, you know, how long do I have to go to meetings till you want to? Right. Do you remember there was a point when you when you wanted to go or things you started to really enjoy recovery? I think that was pretty quick for me. Um, I loved meetings. Uh, you used to say it's the best ticket in town. Uh, and I, I agreed. Like, I really liked it. I, every time I would go, I would hear, like, some story that I would say is, like, inspirational or filled with hope. You'd see people that had these, like, crazy stories, and now we're living these, like, happy, great lives. And it was just, they were entertaining, number one. And uh, they were inspirational, number two. And they just kind of gave me a perspective change that like, whatever I'm dealing with is not that bad. Like these people got through what they had to get through. Like I can get through, you know, my little bullshit problems. Um, and like like what we were saying before, when I was in early sobriety, kind of like the, the emotions and, um, just I call it being in my own head, uh, thinking about myself that that kind of like self centered fear that I was dealing with 24 hours a day in early sobriety. Like going to a meeting kind of gave me like a reprieve for like an hour, you know, yeah. it got me out of my got me out of myself. Um, so I, I like that. Like I kind of quickly realized that that's what meetings did for me at that time. Like I, I really, it was like black and white. Like I felt better walking out of a meeting every time. So I went to a ton of meetings because I, I want to feel good all the time, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, they just worked for me and I liked them. So I, I'm lucky because I know a lot of people struggle with comparing themselves out. You know, I've tried to help some guys that, that don't get it. And, and one of the excuses that they say is that I just don't relate to these guys. There's a homeless guy in there or whatever. And I never had that problem. Like even if it was a homeless guy sharing and he was talking about how he felt about drugs and alcohol, I, I typically related to something that came out of his mouth. And uh, I just didn't try to compare myself out of the rooms. Cause that's bullshit and, uh, when you're doing that. It is. Yeah, it is bullshit. So I mean, what do you what do you tell what do you, what do you tell the, the the new guys that say that? Basically, that it's bullshit. It's it's the it's you know your alcoholism trying to give you an excuse to walk that's, away. That's exactly what it is. Because uh, I, I and, and I know to, I know from my experience, I did it for so long. And a lot of the new guys that I help kind of come from similar backgrounds uh, that I do. And I just try to remind them, like, hey, dude, if you grew up in a different environment, you know, maybe without a dad or without, you might be that guy, too. Like, yeah. Just because you weren't homeless, that's not all because of you. That might be your family might have been propping you up and 
keeping you in the fairway. So I'm sure you can relate a lot more to what these people are saying um, than you think you can. And most guys know that that is the truth. What kind of stuff do you try to do? Like, did you do and do you do like just to, to stay in gratitude, to get that perspective shift, like outside of meetings? Because that's hard. I mean, it's it's something that I struggle with. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, number one is I make a lot of meetings. Um, number two, I sponsor a decent amount of guys. Um, I, you know, I, and I have worked with Steph too. I have a sponsor. I've worked with Steph's. Uh, that helped me a lot um, get to that point of gratitude. But like trying to be of service to new guys kind of keeps it green for me, reminds me what it was like, reminds me of how good my life is now because I see guys come in and, man, it seems like they're in such a deep hole. And even, like, I'll think, how the hell is this guy going to get out of this hole? And I'll tell you what, it's like 100%. Like, in my experience, the guys that stick around and take the suggestions that you give them, no matter what they come in, the problems they come in with, if you run into them again like a year or two later, like they're doing great and they've kind of fixed the, the problems that were happening in their life. And like that clearly happened for me. I mean, my my life is so much better since I got sober and it, it just reminds me of that, you know? I mean, there's, uh, there's guys, it's easy to get caught up in the grind of day-to-day life. Like, ah, way, I'm not getting what I want, or this isn't going my way, or I wish I had this. But then if I'm, you know, going to meetings and, and talking to new guys, it just reminds me like where I was and how much I do have today, you know, four and a half years sober. I mean, there's living, breathing examples of this. Like there's a zoom meeting that you and I are on and there's guys that you literally talk to now they're on this meeting you know you talk to you met them and and i know that yeah i know them through you and uh these guys are like on fire and they're like you know they're guys who i really respect and it started with a conversation with you um after a meeting uh and it's like that's kind of what the what this whole thing is about you know it's like we say if if a guy is in a meeting and he goes out to drink it's like i would bet my life savings that the guy is going to be a complete failure uh, if, right. he, if he doesn't drink, I bet my complete life savings that the person's going to be fulfilled uh, and successful in their own right. Big time. Big time. I would bet against anyone who's an alcoholic. If they're drinking, I'm betting against them. It's going to catch up to them eventually. Their life is going to fall apart. Um, and, you know, anyone, in my opinion, who's working the program and doing the, the things that you're taught in there, I would I would bet on. I mean, it's just the the message, the whole, the values of the program are, are just they're they're so good that um, you know the, the people that I have run into and encounter like it just everybody's life gets better. We got a little more time, but I, and I want to ask you a few more a few more things. You know, your relationships with your family, how has that changed? I mean, it's just gotten so much better. It's like night and day, really. Like, I had such a great relationship with my parents, uh, which I always – my relationship with my parents was never that bad, but it, it was a grind for a certain number of years. I used to try to avoid them because I knew, you know, they didn't want me living the way I was living. But right now, like, we just have a, a great relationship. They're awesome people. When I'm around them, I'm happy and, and in a good place. 
you know, I share with them, you know, a lot of the stuff that I go through in sobriety. They're very supportive. They love it. I mean, they see what it's done for me. Uh, my brother and sister, my brother, I remember when I, when I got sober, he was like, dude, you, it's so nice to like have you back. Like you used to be so unreliable. I'd call you, you'd never answer the phone or we'd be supposed to play golf and I would cancel at the last minute. Like, Little things like that. My brother and I have always been close, very close. But, like, even he saw the change, like, almost immediately. And my sister, same deal. Like, that kind of stuff has been great. How much bigger has your life gotten? I mean, you talked about this guy who was alone by himself. Dude, at the end of my drinking, my life was so small, right? Like, all I wanted to do was drink by myself because I could drink the way I wanted to drink. I was in my house. Like, the... the the ideal weekend for me was to go home from work on a Friday and not leave till Monday, you know, uh, <laughs> not talk to anyone, not take any calls, like just get weird by myself. Um, and you know, I just had a baby girl. I got married in June. You got a beautiful uh, wife. You got a beautiful daughter, beautiful, you know, beautiful wife who like, I just really respect and we're having a great time together. You know, she's cool and fun and, uh, when we have like a very healthy relationship and we had a baby girl uh, three months ago and, and that's been phenomenal. And I'm just like so excited to be like a sober dad um, because I know that I wouldn't have been the type of dad that I would have wanted to be if I was drinking. Like there's just no way that I could do what I was doing and be like a positive influence uh in a child's life um and now like i just can't wait till she like gets bigger and starts walking and talking <laughs> and all that kind of stuff you know uh, so yeah my life is just like it, it's like a 180 it, it, for the better I, like i don't think there's been one thing about getting sober that i would say is a negative like i don't miss i don't even miss drinking that's the crazy thing like you could have never convinced me of that four and a half years ago i don't feel like i'm missing out on anything by not drinking like i can still be social um i just uh that that is the miracle of getting sober for me i almost never think about drinking yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Do you You'll, have that experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I was like, a, and it took a little bit. I was probably a year and a half sober, and I was probably hanging out with, with some of you guys who were drinking around me, and I was probably started to connect with, with females again um, with with confidence, or, 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 or I would cut through my fears rather than let right. them chase me off. And I remember thinking, I remember I was hanging out with a bunch of you guys once, and you guys were, were drinking, you were still drinking, and I remember being like, I'm having so much fun. And I don't want to drink. And like that was like this huge gust of self-esteem. And I certainly didn't have it when I was drinking because, you know, I'm so insecure at certain times. I would just drink till I felt confident. Um, and and right. on, on top of the fact that what you talked about is, you know, I just got I just got the shit. I got the ism. Um, right. You know, it's all throughout my family. So, yeah, I mean, that's when I, yeah, I mean, everything you're saying makes perfect sense. And it's amazing to think that now because, I mean, you talk about, you tried to stop before and you could not stop um, right. because it sounds like if you were all like me, like you, you didn't feel a part of and you felt like, you know, you, or, or you just weren't ready, whatever. But now it's the real deal, dude. Like you don't look and you're, and you're a social guy. You got tons of stuff going in your life. 
Um, it's magical. It is. And one of the things, I mean, they talk about in the program, they say like a life beyond your wildest dreams. And, you know, when I came in, they say, if you stay sober and work the steps and do all that, you'll have a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I remember coming in and thinking like, whatever, like they're just trying to sell this program to me, but, but I'll go along with it. But like, what is going to happen? That's going to be beyond all of my wildest dreams. Like I thought, that was bullshit and like a sales pitch. Um, but, but like really that has been true for me. And one of the things you just said was like yourself, you were, you were, had high self-esteem. And I think that's a huge part of it that's beyond my wildest dreams. And I think it's like as simple as if you want self-esteem, like do esteemable things, you know, like such a simple, idea but something that never occurred to me uh when i was drinking like stop doing shit you're ashamed of and maybe you'll start feeling good about yourself uh i needed to i you know my parents taught me that but i never got it um and i needed the program to kind of walk me through that uh in a very like basic way and that has come true. I mean, my, my I would say my self-esteem is just so much better since since I got sober. And that has led to, you know, a life beyond my wildest dreams. What is what does untreated alcoholism look like for you, like on a day to day now? So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the that's the battle, right? Like I'm constantly uh, trying to work the program to to avoid that untreated alcoholism like it's a daily reprieve for me uh you know just because i have you know almost five years i can feel as bad today as i felt the day that i came in if i don't if i don't kind of do the the basic maintenance that i need to do in the program and that for me is really like trying to stay in touch with my higher power uh that i call god like trying to bring him into my life and um trying to stay in touch with other alcoholics i mean i pretty much talk to five six alcoholics a day um, i hit at least four meetings a week and uh and if i don't i lose that perspective that we talked about i lose that feeling of gratitude i can have 99 percent of my life going great but i'll focus on that one percent that's not you know the way i want it to be um so, you know, and I can, if, if I don't go to meetings, like I can start thinking that drinking looks good to me again. You know, when I get away from it, uh, I can quickly forget the way I felt on July 7th, 2016 yeah. and think I wasn't that bad. I'm not as bad as these guys were, you know, uh, I can convince myself of that. So I don't know if I answered that question. Yeah, you, you did. You did a hell of a job too. What do you tell people that are like on the fence about drinking? I mean, if if I was talking to somebody, I would basically tell them my story and I would tell them, you know, what it's been like since I got sober uh, and how much better things have gotten. Um, and I would tell people to give it a shot. I mean, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me by far. Uh, I scratched and clawed for so long to hang on to this lifestyle that I was living. And I had really, like, when I look back, I had no joy. You know, I was just, like, numb all the time. 
I was just drinking. It was, it was a sad place at the end. And it just amazes me how hard I clung to that, you know? Uh, and then once I finally let go and, and kind of got swept up into sobriety, just everything has gotten better. You know, I like get up early in the morning and like the, the sunrise looks good or the birds chirping or I go out and hit balls at six in the morning. Hit golf balls. I, I just hit golf balls. I love it. Um, you know, every day before I got sober, I was waking up feeling like I had, you know, I should go to the hospital. I felt so bad just sitting in the shower being like, God, please just like get me through today. Like, how am I going to get through today? Like, it was like a chore to get through the day. Well, you and, and I, you and I, I have like, set, a, set an alarm clock. And, and now you what? I don't set an alarm clock. Yeah. Like, I just get up and I'm like ready to go and I feel good. Well, we've said before when, because uh, it's so true. If if I wake up, if I were to wake up today, the way that I felt waking up when I was drinking, uh, I'd call nine one one, and I felt that way every day. Yeah, yeah. Every day it was like totally normal for me to basically feel sick. Yeah, you know, it's just it's it's just no way to live, and I don't. You know, the thing that you learn when you get some time in sobriety is just like some somebody told me this like early on, like life is this beautiful thing that you're supposed to experience. Like there's, yeah, there's ups and downs, but you're supposed to be there for the whole thing and experience it. Like there's short, you're only here for a short amount of time. And I wasn't experiencing any of it, dude. I was just numbing myself out. And now I and, uh, you know, I get through it and it's not always easy, but I have people like yourself and, and tons of other friends that I've made in the program to help me during tough times. Like, you know, the, the fears or the, or, you know, the, the things you have to go through in life that are tough, uh, life on life's terms. I have like a support system to allow me to face life and, and do it in like a dignified way. Yeah, and you do a hell of a job. Um, whoever knew, Murph, you could be uh, such a softy and talk about your feelings for an hour and, and almost 15 minutes. Anything <laughs> Anything else? No, I think that's it. We got to let Mike go home now. So, um, so, right. so I'll talk to you tomorrow, bro. Great All job. Right, See ya. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 